All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back. This is the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to talk today with Holly Logue. She is general counselor at a very cool company called Drawbridge. They're coming up with a new type of blood test. We're going to talk to Holly about her path to medtech and also about her role at Drawbridge. She'll actually be a speaker at an upcoming, this upcoming, this Tuesday's Device Talks Tuesdays, where we'll be uh, talking with uh, a panel of experts about protecting yourself in this age of disruption. So go to devicetalks.com for more about that conversation, but uh, I know you'll enjoy meeting Holly. She has uh, had an interesting trip into our sector. A little later, I'll speak with Devine Chopra of Edwards. Devine's gonna talk to me about their recent approval of the Connect Resilia Aortic Valve Conduit. It's an interesting device that will actually save surgeons a great deal of time at a time when Time is essential. So it's an important approval for Edwards, important approval for patients. Davina and I will talk about that, but also about sort of the future of innovation in, uh, in surgery. We talk a lot about minimally invasive surgery, but we're, we're going to talk a bit about more open surgery, more traditional surgery. So Davina's a, a very interesting guy, and I know you'll enjoy that conversation. But before we get into both, I'm really excited to bring you this segment with Chris Newmarker, the Executive Editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris and I are going to cover some of the hottest stories of this week. So let's get right into it. All right, now we're here from my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, executive editor of Life Sciences here at Mass Device. I hope we have the new logo up, but I don't know if you've noticed that this podcast will now be powered by Mass Device. How does that make you feel? Very powerful? I got the power. Yeah, like just totally powerful, <laughs> man. It's great. Oh, uh, you are you produce great what? audio, sir. Thank you very much. Hey, do, do I get a <laughs> ring of power if I'm powering the podcast? Like, yes, yes. And but I will have the one that rules them all. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Very careful. laughs> so you enrolled a new uh new feature on Mass Device this week. It's 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 something I th- I like to think was inspired by our podcast last week, but I know you come up with so many great ideas on your own. But uh, it's a kind of a top five list of uh, the, the, the most read articles on your Mass Device site in the week. So Yeah, there we go. Kind of like it in case you missed it, Mass Device top five. So, so really just kind of looking at our Google Analytics and, and saying, hey, what were the, the most read stories that we can give people a, you know, a good rundown of what's going on here? Awesome. So we have the numbers to support our countdown, which will begin right now. Chris, what came in at number five this week on Mass Device? Well, number five, actually, this is just hot off the presses. Uh, I guess we don't have presses anymore. Hot off the wire. <laughs> we have, uh, we uh, like uh, just uh, yesterday evening, uh, Edwards Life Sciences released its Q2 results. You know, and it's interesting because, I mean, their CEO and other officials have been, you know, saying that, I mean, the Q2 results were going to be tough. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and a recession. Uh, but, you know, kind of the nice thing was that, you know, wasn't as as tough as uh, Wall Street was expecting, and Edwards is even upping its earnings guidance for the year. And I mean, I kind of uh, their you know their CEO kind of summed it up that uh, it's just basically that there's kind of like a growing recognition. Um, you know, people need valve therapy mm-hmm. can't postpone it. So 
you know, they, uh, they're, you know, they're, you know, you know, they're, they're, you know, seeing, they're predicting they're going to get, you know, their, their procedures, you know, back, you know, maybe sooner than expected. No, that would be, that would be welcome. And we talked about Edwards last week uh, about their approval of their Connect Resilia Aortic Valve Conduit. So Edwards is, uh, is making some great news. Number four, Chris, number four is a perennial winner. Tell us about number four. Yeah, the, you know, the trial of uh, Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, it's likely not going to happen this year. It's, uh, you know, the, the judge in California is, uh, you know, suggesting that it'll, uh, you know, probably have to be a, a 2021 uh, deal, uh, which, I mean, you know, hopefully, you know, next year, you know, we'll have a, we'll have a vaccine, knock on wood, and you know, the pandemic will be less of a story. Hopefully our economy will be recovering. And, uh, you know, that this can kind of be uh, big, big news to follow next year is this uh, big, big trial. I mean, it's probably early, early in the century, but I mean, I, I guess we can't call it MedTech's trial of the century, but it's, it's a pretty, pretty wild trial. Remember the good old days when, you know, the top news used to be, you know, just like some big crazy trial that, you know, people were following. You know. Oh yeah. No, this was going to be a biggie. I and mean, maybe this is, uh, this is more fodder for, for John Carrier to write a sequel to, uh, to the most excellent bad blood. So we can have, we can have bad trial coming up. Should trademark it before Carrier does. Okay. So we're going to get into number three and number two after this first interview, I had a chance to speak with Holly Logue, she is general counsel at a very cool company called Drawbridge Health that's looking to disrupt the blood collection industry. And she's actually going to be a panelist on our Device Talks Tuesdays, which is coming up. And it's all about finding a ways to, number one, disrupt medtech, make sure your technology is in position to disrupt medtech. We've got a great panel of uh, general counsels and attorneys. The attorneys are coming from Finnegan. We have uh, attorneys from Drawbridge Health and Hologic. You can check out all the details on devicetalks.com. It's going to be a, a really important conversation. Let's take a moment. We're going to hear from Holly Logue of Drawbridge Health. Well, Holly Logue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm blessed to have guests with uh, very interesting backgrounds and, uh, and you among them. You've got uh, some time you've spent at law firms and at startups. And, and I'd love to learn how you sort of transition from one to the other and sort of move back and forth. But one thing that stood on your LinkedIn profile was your stint with, uh, with a committee in Congress. What was your, uh, who did you work with? And uh, how did you end up spending some time there? So it was interesting. Um, I was a big fan of Obama. And I was at Arnold and Porter uh, when he got sworn in. And I said, uh, to everyone I work with, I said, I want to, I want to do something. I want to do something for this country. This is a great administration. And I, I thought I'm going to go work for Congress. And everyone told me, you have to know someone and someone has to pull some strings for you to get in there. And I said, well, I'm, I'm still going to send out my resume. And I, I did. And I got a call from the committee of science and technology in the house of representatives. And it just so happened um, they were looking to expand their jurisdiction into biotech, oh. and they oversee the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And at that time, uh, there was a big push from Waxman to do a bioequivalence program to get biosimilars on the market faster. And so Congress had made the decision to push this. They'd gone to the FDA saying, please make an accelerated regulatory pathway the FDA went to NIST and said, we don't really know how to do this with these large molecules. Can you help us? 
And that lit a fire under NIST, who decided they were going to develop an entire biomedical research program. And then, of course, the committee needed someone with my background who could understand what was going on. Very cool. So did you carry away some lessons from that experience that you still lean on today? Yeah, working for Congress is very painful. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting because um, I I did expand it. I I set up a lot of uh, hearings for the committee, and then I started working on a couple of legislative pieces. And what I took away is how important relationships are, and how much if you can foster those relationships on the Hill, you can get done as a company. And so that has actually come full circle at Drawbridge um, when COVID came out. And I, you know, so this is a great opportunity. The federal government is now going to pay attention to this. There will be some changes that we see in the FDA and other, other areas, other agencies. We should really get involved and see what we can do. And so we've hired a, a government relations firm, and I'm in charge of basically managing how we work through that government relations firm to build some credential within federal gov- the federal government uh, and, and find some opportunities that way. So last question about Congress. Is this something where we're having an election coming up? There's going to be a lot of passion and energy tied to the outcome i'll just leave it at that young people younger professionals listen to this podcast is that an experience you'd uh, you'd recommend for someone if you really believe in um what the administration is doing uh, and then i i think it is a good experience i'm it, it it can be painful it can be challenging i also know people who've gone up there and become lobbyists and I think there's an incredible amount of life experience and education that can come out of that experience. And that was certainly the case for me. Um, I won't guarantee that it will necessarily meet your expectations or be <laughs> anywhere near what you think it will be because it, it, it wasn't. It was a shock to me to see how our government really worked um, and, uh, you know, the, the level of dysfunctionality <laughs> to some extent. So you were at you were an attorney, you were an Arnold, an associate at Arnold and Porter before that, and then you went on to uh, to join the life sciences industry. Was that always your plan, or uh, did that just make itself available? And I've I've had plans and they've never worked. So, <laughs> <laughs> amen. <laughs> um, yes. No plan. No plan is the best plan in my mind, but. So um, I I actually never even planned to be a lawyer. I was planning to be a doctor, and. Um, Something happened and, you know, I got a little cynical and I said, well, I'm just going to take the LSAT and see what happens. And I scored really, really well on the LSAT. And I said, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. And uh, it, it all kind of fell into place after that. But there was, you know, never my plan. I, I, I wish I could say I, I did. I wish I could say I was more calculated than that. And I've tried to be. I really have. But life is incredibly unpredictable. And what I have found is if I just look a little bit ahead instead and think, well, what skills do I want to have? What experiences are going to enrich me as a professional and individual? What I found is all of that ends up allowing me to do a whole bunch of different things. So as I mentioned earlier um, to you before we got on this is I am a mutt. I am not the purebred dog that you go buy at the store that has, you know, limited 
limited, um, I want to say genetic code, I guess. I, I'm kind of the thing that got thrown together with a, a broad experience across many different areas. The consistency has, to my delight, um, been in healthcare. Um, as I said, mm -hmm. I wanted to be a doctor. I think that can be incredibly emotionally challenging. We're seeing it with our healthcare providers now. I don't think we appreciate our healthcare providers as much as we should. We certainly don't recognize and protect and pay them what they should be worth. Um, but as a, as a lawyer, what I've been able to do is, you know, if I just do my job every day, at some point, some patient may benefit from something I've done. And that's the hope that keeps me going. I don't have to practice in an area of law that just drains my soul. Uh, and that would, that would be the worst of all worlds. I get to have a little bit of hope in my day. How did you find your way to, to Drawbridge? And let's, well, let's back up and talk, tell us a little bit about Drawbridge Health. It's really an, a, a company with a, an interesting device that I think my 10-year-old son would, would love because <laughs> he hates the needles. Yeah, well, Drawbridge is really interesting. It was actually started out of an effort from GE to commercialize or develop some IP that it wasn't using. And GE had developed all of this really cool stabilization technology for dry blood. And they didn't know what to do with it. So they spun it out into a company. Um, and then they designed a device around that IP that was exclusively licensed to the company that was fairly simple and straightforward to use to collect blood. Um, and that was the inception of it. And it, it, it's, there's challenges with that and there's certainly a benefit. I think the, the really interesting thing is healthcare has to change. We have to make it more patient centric. We have to bring it to the patient. We've seen more and more things push out to the patient, especially with COVID. Thank goodness for telemedicine happening a couple of years ago. Um, and, and we've seen the resistance to that from the regulatory side. So Drawbridge really has found a niche um, where we can help push that care out to patients. Um, but of course, the same challenges are on the regulatory and the current infrastructure. So all of your automation, all of your standardization is set up around liquid venous blood. And all of your major machines and your reagents and everything's calculated to that. And the FDA knows how to work with that. There are transitions that you have to do um, and conversions between liquid blood and dry blood and venous blood and capillary blood. And so that makes it very unstandard to do what's right for the patient. Mm -hmm. And so in order to change that right now, if you think about technology curves, they're S curves and you build up an ecosystem around something and all of a sudden a technology takes off. So when you think about um, the, the simplest example I can give is Kodak went out of business really when the iPhone came out. There was this slow transition towards digital photography, but there wasn't really an ecosystem there to make it widely available until Apple put a camera mm -hmm. on their iPhone and boom, no one would have seen that coming. Certainly not Kodak. <laughs> <but> <laughs> that was on who's printing their photos. 
and that's kind of the same thing that I see with Drawbridge is we have this whole ecosystem set around venous blood and liquid blood and slowly we're seeing the technology move towards a different format that's more user-friendly and towards a patient and at some point something's going to come in and force that ecosystem to shift and when that happens the then all the standardization and automation will have to shift with it. I do want to talk about the one draw for a moment in looking at the video and we'll post the the, the link to the website uh, on the podcast page but it's drawbridgehealth.com and the one draw looks like a computer mouse or about the size of that that you put your arm grabs hold of your skin a little bit a little bit of, of yourself for a vacuum and then draws a blood I assume relatively painlessly is is that right yeah yes so yes. I mean that in itself I think is a, is a great tech but with the the unfortunately un unfortunate onset of COVID that seems to have a, a myriad of applications that we can use going forward. I mean, in terms of testing for disease or antibodies or whatnot, what, what has the last three months been like for, for Drawbridge sort of with all of this opportunity sort of <laughs> opening wide? So I remember San Francisco went into lockdown on or around March, I, I think 11th, and I have never been so busy <laughs> in my life. <laughs> I, I, you know, I used to joke, I thought, great, if we all get locked down, and this is back in January or February, where we weren't quite sure what we were preparing I'll get for. Some books. I thought, I'll do some no. baking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I'll get some sleep. I won't have to come into the office. This is going to be great. No, that didn't happen at all. It was calls starting at 7 a.m. and going until 10 p.m. and just kind of nonstop. And what you know, a change for us is this, this really terrible thing. And I, you know, I don't like to make light of COVID. It is, it's a, I have parents and I can't visit them right now. Um, so, and this is killing people. This is incredibly scary and frustrating. Um, but we can approach it from a very negative point of view or a very positive one. And again, I like to get up and go, what can I do on the positive of this? And here's an opportunity where we had something um, and if we worked really hard and moved fast, we could grab onto this and push this out into the market. And one of the unique things about Drawbridge is it does use a dry blood spot format. So if you think about you know, some of the other similar technologies out there, they, they may have a device that looks like ours or doesn't use venous blood draw, um, instead use capillary blood, but it's liquid format. And that is not stable um, necessarily unless you put it into cold chain transport. So you're still going into a lab, you're still going into a center. At some point, what we'd ultimately like to see, and we have to obviously work with the FDA to get there, is the ability to have this be used by a layperson in the home so that your significant other um, could potentially administer this device to you in your house and you don't have to leave your house uh, Until we get there then we you know, there may be other alternatives around that but anything is certainly better than sending um, an elderly patient into a lab core quest spot or a hospital to go get a venous blood draw right now So what has uh, kept you so busy? What what is Strawbridge doing today? and has done over the last three months since, since March 11th. What is, what have, how, is you, how have you been spending your time? 
at a real high level, we've been working with partners to validate the technology um, in the antibody space and to really prove that what we have works uh, for detection of antibodies as well as see, make sure that we do the testing to support an application to the FDA and understand a lot of different angles that you may not see with just one or the other. Excellent. Well, this has been a great conversation. I look forward to, uh, to speaking with you on Tuesday and Device Talks Tuesdays. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. All right. I'm back with Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences here at Mass Device. We're doing the Mass Device Countdown. Chris, we are at number three. What came in at number three? The, number, the third most read article on Mass Device this week. You know, number three, Boston Sci got uh, an FDA nod for its uh, next-gen Watchmen, and this is That's like, awesome. a, yeah, very awesome. And you know, this is a, uh, you know, this is about it's a left atrial appendage closure device, and this is about uh, reducing the risk of a uh, of stroke and uh, reducing the need, uh, you know, like you know, trying to get rid of some of the bleeding danger associated with blood thinners. So, I mean, the the, the original Watchmen, you know, came out a few years ago, and uh, you know, now that now Boston Sci is this next gen device, and uh, you know, I think it's just kind of like another example of like even as you know, we have so much attention on the pandemic, I mean, device companies are getting you know approvals for uh, some new you know some innovative stuff, you know, even amid the pandemic. So. It, Good news there. Um, number two, you know, was that uh, Abbott uh, got an approval to, uh, you know, for its patient controller for its neuromodulation devices. These are like implantable pacemaker-like devices that you know you might be using to treat chronic pain or movement disorders. They uh, the controller for it uh, can can now be a smartphone app. You know, you can. Uh, you know, there's a there's an app for your controlling your neuromod device that's awesome improved you know, i so. keep saying that's awesome but it is great and it's also timely yeah. we had our, our device talks tuesday on tuesday sponsored by s3 connected health about the importance of of connected med tech and, and companies big and small need to have plans in place and abbott has really been been a leader in this space so uh i'm sure i hope i never require one of these implants but and, it and would it. be it would be assuring to have some level of monitoring control right on my uh available to me through an app on my phone so you know and they really said this would boost uh you know you know management of, of the conditions as well remotely which i mean that's just really important right now absolutely you know any anything that keeps you from having to you know go into a healthcare facility right now uh, you know is, is a good thing amid this pandemic so, and yeah. and just managing your own pain i mean pain is just it's not a disease that we talk about but it's uh, certainly a condition that is life-changing so Great work by, by the folks at Abbott. All right, we're going to get into number one after this visit with, as I mentioned up talk, we spoke with Javine Chopra, or I got to speak with Javine Chopra. He is yes. uh, from Edwards, and we talked a bit about their uh, recent approval of Connect Resilia, but also just about other innovations that uh, Edwards is pursuing in the heart surgery space. So, so let's listen. Well, Davine Chopra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Davine, I'm eager to learn about your innovation in the surgery space. We talked offline about how much attention is giving to minimally invasive technologies, but there are advances being made in so-called traditional surgeries as well, and this is one of them. So before we get into that larger conversation, let's talk about the news. What has been approved and how is it an improvement 
over existing technologies? We obviously just recently got approval for a product called the Connect Brasilia Aortic Valve Conduits. We just received FDA approval for this device. And this device is a uh, ready-to-use um, device for use in these complex bental procedures. And what people had to previously do for these complex bental procedures, where you have to not only replace an aortic valve, but some of the aorta above it, is that we've created a single product that people, that's cardiac surgeons to use to um, put into a patient where before they might have had to take several different products off the shelf on the back bench, kind of sew them together themselves, and kind of almost, let's say, call it jerry-rig kind of a solution for these patients. And what we did is we created a solution that they can just streamline and efficiently use to treat these complex patients. And this assembly was done in the operating room with the patient open? Yeah, so quite exactly. So this is an open, traditionally an open surgery, a major open surgery. It could last maybe five hours or so. And they would take different products that were not really fully designed or ever put together. And they'd kind of assemble themselves or sew them together often on the back bench. And then they would put that inside the patient. So we're taking a cardiac surgeon who had to focus on putting together the medical device and getting him to hopefully now just focus on treating the patient. What was what was preventing them from assembling it prior to the operation? Is it do they have to assess the damage and, and see what needs to be fixed and check sizes and all that? Yeah, I mean, a part of it's definitely that where you can't decide which valve to use until you've opened up the patient and you've actually sized the patient. So that's an mm-hmm. important characteristic where you can't pre-do this before the case. Um, and additionally, if you look at traditionally most aortic valves, they're stored in a solution called glutaraldehyde. So they're sl- stored wet and they have to stay wet until you literally put it out and just put it into the patient. Um, we recently came out with this new tissue called Resilia. It's our next generation, we believe more durable tissue, but a key feature of this tissue is that it's dry. So you don't have to store it wet. So now that enables us to uh, pre-assemble this valve with a dry surgical graft um, before it ever gets to a hospital versus having to do it real time at the operation. So the approval, as I've read on the press release, is for the Connect Resilia Aortic Valve Conduit. Is that the entire device, or is that sort of the, the, the tool used to deliver the valve itself? That is the device name. So it is both in a specially designed aortic valve okay. made with certain features for this, along with a surgical graft already pre-connected to it. So the physician's job is to take out the old aortic valve and aorta and put in this new pre-assembled device. How does the physician, how do you account for the size issues before that the surgeon had to deal with when assembling the valve? Um, so now what you do is we, we have a variety of sizes now created. So this graft is made with all our valve sizes. So what a physician can do is as they do the procedure, they real-time size the patient, and then they grab the right size of the pre-assembled device. So we have you know a handful of different sizes that can be pulled off the shelf um, and then used real-time. How does this affect the uh, the surgery time? You mentioned it could have been five hours or more before previously. What what are we looking at now? Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely streamlines and make it more efficiently, uh, makes it more efficient. It's hard to put an exact number on it, but we know, I think about it a little bit this way, versus a, a, a surgeon having to make their own device. It's like a, an aortic valve. We don't give them the leaflets and give them a frame and say, sew it together. They've already got it done themselves. Yeah, surgeons have the skills and the ability to do so. But this just streamlines and make the whole case more efficiently. So that five-hour case obviously will have some kind of reduction in time. And it's hard to be precise as every case is a little bit different. But it really then makes them the confidence that 
the case will just go more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, we're so accustomed now in MedTech to talk about value and we've saved time and you can fit, you know, sur six surgeries into a day instead of four and, and all yeah. that. How, how are you positioning this? What is your sales pitch to the hospitals and physicians? I mean, it would seem to sell itself, but there's a lot of questions being asked these days. Yeah, no, no, of course. And I think really what we see is that physicians see this unmet need. We're saying, okay, I've got a really complex procedure. I got to do a million things to put it together. Anything I can do to reduce the number of steps, steps and use things designed for this patient is ultimately going to make this patient have a better result and going to make it a little bit more efficient and a little bit of an easier procedure. So from a physician standpoint, it ends up being a, an almost a no-brainer because they're going into something that, you know, the cardiac surgery, a really complex case. They're a little bit younger patients. These are long, long cases. And you think about it, anything they can do to make that case easier, they jump on. And they see the value, uh, physicians especially see this value of saying, hey, if I can do this much more efficiently, I'm, I'm going to do it. And so that's really where it, what drives the physician's interest and usage on this, um, on this product so far. And, and what does the sales effort look like? Uh, I guess this is where I start thinking about COVID and how, it's, how salespeople are having a difficult time getting in the hospitals. But this is obviously, a, is this something that, how, how is this sold? How does your sales team engage with, with the hospitals and the yeah. physicians? Of course. So we have a, a direct sales team here. Let's just use the U.S. where this product is real. We have a direct sales team in the U.S. where we, uh, especially for this uh, this particular product, it's uh, the these complex surgeries are generally more consolidated in centers of excellence. So there's, you know, it's kind of a little bit more of that 80-20 rule on the number of centers. And there's probably, you know, a little bit under 100 key centers in the U.S. that really do a lot of these types of procedures. Our sales channel is a uh, very directly works with both the physician, the administrator to be able to use this product. They're there to, uh, before that first case, to train the surgeon um, how to use it. And then after, a, after they've been there for maybe one or two or three cases over different days, we have the product stocked on the shelf where the physicians can then kind of use it on their own. But our job is really the initial training. So obviously with COVID, um, the timing of this is in a way where we're in a different situation than we were in, let's call it, April or May where surgeries overall were at a much lower level and now surgeries are happening. So obviously we take all the precautions, but our reps are critical to being a part of those first procedures and they're, uh, they're in the operating room uh, with the physicians. And I imagine there's no change or necessary change to reimbursement. Yeah. So these procedures are um, under broad uh, list page. A lot of these patients are Medicare and some of them are obviously private payers that fall under kind of these DRGs for cardiovascular surgery that would hit all different types of valvular surgery, including the way these were traditionally done or with this procedure. So it is covered under the current kind of reimbursement scheme, which is helpful for hospitals to quickly have to adopt it, to, to be able to quickly adopt it. They're not waiting for a whole new coding or something like that. It falls in very well with the system of reimbursement already in place. And generally, cardiac surgery overall for a hospital is actually a, is a good procedure for a hospital, despite the long length of stays of cardiac surgery versus other technologies, et cetera, overall cardiac surgery is actually a very um, positive uh, financial area or, or line for a hospital. Hmm. And as I, I mentioned at the top, uh, it's amazing. I'm just realizing how little I talk about cardiac surgery these days. <laughs> it seems like so much of my time is focused on connected health or something else. Uh, what what sort of innovation is, uh, is happening at Edwards in, in, in this space? And what sort of advances do we see coming uh, the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, if you, you take act and maybe start with the broad sense of the things, right? We um, we know there's a lot of amazing new transcatheter technologies out there, but even now and for many years in the future, they're actually 
a lot of cardiac surgery segments that still exist. There's still a big need for cardiac surgeons. Cardiac surgery is a specialty is actually growing in number in the U.S. because so much surgery is needed. But what's happening is that those surgeries are actually becoming more and more complex because as easier surgeries, maybe transcatheter technology can take care of easier surgeries, what's left is the harder surgeries, the more complex surgeries, which actually makes uh, the need for great cardiac surgeons even higher. So as we look at our portfolio, ultimately at the highest level, we're always saying, hey, how do we uh, look for unmet needs in cardiac surgery in segments that we think are gonna keep growing because we know there are a lot of segments that are gonna always be surgery for many, many years in the future. And how do we create amazing new innovations for those people? And so what that comes down to is, you know, a lot of the core of our business has been in valvular surgery where we have recently come out with new generations of surgical valves that we think will last a lot longer because of these new resilient tissue. And they're also more able to be, um, have a transcatheter valve put into them in the future. So it's lined up. So you get, you know, if you have to have two or three procedures in your lifetime, you have your surgery, then you can further on in the future, line up a transcatheter valve into it. Mm-hmm. We're also, and so that's kind of a bulk of a lot of our inventions for both uh, the surgical uh, valve space, as well as these complex spaces like Connect. We're also working um, in the mitral valve repair section. And mitral valve repair is a an art form of repairing someone's mitral valve for mitral regurgitation, where we've been recently making a lot of investments in new beating heart technology. So how do you help do cardiac surgery, treat the patient without having to stop the heart, which is great for patients in kind of these low risk situations in a minimally invasive way. So we have a technology called Harpoon that we recently just did our, that we recently got CE Mark for and did our first cases in, in Europe for. So we're, we're continuing to invest in trying to not only advance our technologies today, but also transform cardiac surgery uh, for the future. And just tell me a little bit more about Harpoon. What will that be? What is that able to do? Yeah. So Harpoon is um, treating uh, mitral valve repair and a disease called degenerative mitral regurgitation. Mm -hmm. And for, for this way today, traditionally, surgeons, often through an open surgical approach, put an annuloplasty ring in, and it's kind of like an art where there are different methodologies and different techniques to kind of repairing the valve. And these are usually very low risk patients um, that re- need that can get a long durable solution. However, what we're trying to do with this new beating heart technology called Harpoon is enable physicians to not only not stop the heart, so keep the heart moving, which is better for patients, but through a more new, more minimally invasive approach, essentially do a mitral valve repair without having to fully open the chest, without stopping the heart, but also targeting that same long durability in a more safe uh, procedure. And so this is a technology that uh, we, yeah, we just recently got CE marked for, and we, um, we announced more, not that long ago that we got approval in the US to start our US IDE study. And it's a very exciting technology for us for mitral valve repair. Oh, and when, how large will that study be? And how many patients, when will you begin? Yeah, we're still finalizing the numbers, et cetera, with the FDA, but we expect to enroll patients starting in the second half of this calendar year. So it's a it's a full you know ID study that'll take a little bit to enroll as well as uh, the appropriate one year follow up time for these patients. So it's a super exciting technology. I've only mentioned COVID once in this conversation, but uh, <laughs> I'll just ask uh, just the final question: uh, How has how have things changed under COVID? I mean, starting a clinical trial like this, when I imagine that must complicate things as well, perhaps, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. How, how are things impacting you? 
Well, of course, I'll hit from two different angles. First, on maybe the clinical trial aspect, you said, obviously, um, different hospitals are in different situations now. Um, in this trial, is a U.S., Europe, Canada trial. So all in different situations. Some hospitals are very are in a good situation to go through the normal um, IRB approvals and start a trial. And some hospitals need a little bit more time and things are going to take a little bit longer. So there is uh, variation now in the startup of, uh, of, of hospitals, which is occurring because of COVID. But I think overall, we saw initially um, in the space of cardiac surgery, obviously as COVID hits, cardiac surgery um, slowed down drastically. Still the most, most emergent cases always were occurring, so it didn't stop, but it slowed down drastically. But what we saw, I think, through the last couple of months is that generally hospitals are able to balance treating COVID patients as well as doing cardiac surgery um, because they not only need it for the patient, uh, because it's so important for patients to not delay cardiac surgery because it leads to high mortality. So they're able to balance the two. So we've seen cardiac surgery do a, a, a pretty good uh, comeback in the, in the last month or two. Uh, and then there's always going to be localized hotspots that obviously kind of uh, tamper down things. But uh, we see hospitals, physicians, and patients really prioritizing treating their deadly disease. Excellent. Great. Well, congratulations on the approval and thank you for, uh, for the update on, uh, on what Ed Edwards is working on. No, I appreciate it, Tom. Thanks so much. I uh, appreciate everything. All right. Great visit by Devine Chopra. Thanks for joining us, Devine. Now, here we are, the big moment. I think I need to get a drum roll sound effect yeah. for, uh, for next week. But uh, let's... Can I get uh, on the table? <laughs> there you go. All right. All right. The most read article on Mass Device of the week is? The biggest story is that the U.S. and Canada want another 177 million needles and syringes from, from BD. So, so in total at this point, uh, the U.S., Canada, U.K. have SBD for 330 million needles and syringes because you just don't, you just don't need a you know, a COVID-19 vaccine, you need the stuff to actually deliver to people. So that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm surprised by the, the needles and syringes because we talk so much about connected health and all this innovative technology, but yeah, let's, uh, let's keep it real. <laughs> this yeah, is the, that's the right. most important tech we have. Sometimes you just need a good old fashioned syringe, syringe to hopefully give uh, millions of people a vaccine that will, uh, you know, get, get our lives uh, a lot more back to normal. So all right, here's well, the, Here's the hope, and we can uh, use uh, use one of those syringes, uh, you know, with you know by the end of the year with something that actually works. Absolutely, great. Well, this has been fun. I think we'll continue to do this. It's nice to sort of give a, a week in review and and to uh, give companies their due for for creating the news that that people want to read. So, Chris, thanks for compiling this li this list. It is available on massdevice.com, and we'll have a link available on the. Uh, on the podcast website as well. So finally, here's, uh, here's where we say goodbye. Chris, how can folks find you on LinkedIn and Twitter? I'm on, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my uh, handle is uh, at Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. Excellent. We can, we'd love to connect. I am also on LinkedIn and you can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. So thanks everyone for joining us on this week's podcast. Please do us a few favors. Number one, subscribe. That would help us a lot. Number two, leave some comments and rankings about the podcast. That also helps others find the podcast. I think most importantly, tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast if you're enjoying it and share it on social media. And if you do that, please use the previously mentioned tags. Connect to Chris and myself. We'd love to be part of those conversations. So Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this week's Device Talks Weekly. Don't forget, 
We will have our Device Talks Tuesday discussion sponsored by Finnegan. If you are a startup company with disruptive technology or a company that is worried about being disrupted, go to devicetalks.com. Register for the Device Talks Tuesday seminar. It's free. It'll be a great conversation. Starts at 4 p.m. on Tuesday. That's it, folks. Thanks again for joining us on this week's Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Stay safe and healthy. I got the power.